This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday, time for our crack strategy panel. And most of us are on tenterhooks waiting to see if there will be further restrictions or even a full lockdown, which some people are predicting. Now, there seems to be a growing split between the medical community, which is advocating aggressive measures, and the politicians who are looking for a more, quote, balanced approach. The Toronto Star, for instance, is characterizing it as a split between the city and the province, and they have the city winning. Uh, Well, who is playing politics here? And will the Ford government start wearing the current failure to control the pandemic in long-term care when we all heard their heartfelt anguish at the devastation last spring and with them saying that they would spare no expense to fix it. I'd like to hear from you, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now let's bring in John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, Charles Bird, Managing Principal of Ernst Cliff Strategy Group in Toronto, and Karen Stintz, the CEO of Variety Village. Hi, everyone. Welcome. Okay, let's start with John. So uh, we've seen the province, uh, before it even started, amended its new uh, uh, color-coded threat system. Uh, We've seen it listen to public health units who uh, put in restrictions stronger than the province advocated. Uh, Does that mean that the province is starting to lose sway, John? No, not at all. I think that, you know, the province and the premier continue to try to deal with this pandemic that, you know, it, it evolves. And uh, we certainly know a lot more now than we did back in March. Uh, and I think we're trying to deal with it in, in, a, in a way that is much more different because we know a lot of things. And, you know, therapies are starting to uh, prove themselves to be somewhat effective. We've got vaccines that are coming. So there's a bit of a, a different sort of outlook with respect to the pandemic than it, when it was in March when everything was locked down. But that said, there's no question that the premier, you know, continues to listen to health professionals. He always has, always will. There's going to be a bit of a divide when it comes to, you know, what health professionals want, because they look at it from a purely one-sided uh, issue, which is, of course, is health and safety, which, of course, the premier does as well. But he also has a responsibility of making sure that the economy and businesses uh, and others where they can uh, continue to operate so that the economy doesn't shut down completely because obviously we can't afford that and people need to have jobs and there's so much money that they can go around. So there's that balance between, you know, making sure people's health and safety first and foremost is there, but yet still maintaining some level of recovery and, and, and the economy going. So I think that balance continues. It's a tough one because uh, it sort of keeps evolving, but I think it's one that the premier continues to look at and, and does so with some level of, of urgency. 
Charles Bird, do you see it that way? Is the premier starting to lose some of his luster? I mean, they they released these new uh, thresholds for various their color coded red alert, orange alert, and they amended them because uh, it turned out that uh, they had very, very high thresholds for for putting in any restrictions. You know, they were too lax, and yeah. they were out of sync with what uh, medical professionals were recommending, and that proved not to be sustainable, and we now have um, anywhere from 1,250 to 1,600 new cases of COVID a day. But, you know, it, it, it would be just grossly unfair to lay this entirely at the feet of the Premier or of any government in any jurisdiction, because obviously we're dealing with something that is uh, pernicious, widespread. What we're what we're seeing is happening around the world, quite literally, in just about every every country. And the reality of the situation is that um, the jurisdictions that will fare best are those where different levels of government and medical professionals are working in very close synchronization. And you know. These are political issues. I mean, the extent to which businesses are closed down temporarily or permanently, I mean, these are intensely emotional issues, and they're not getting any easier. But what we're facing now is um, the very real possibility that we, we will be at five to 6,000 cases uh, per day in the lead-up to Christmas. And Lord knows what happens after Christmas, after uh, many of us uh, will be inevitably getting together with our families. Karen, uh, in the spring, we heard they're very heartfelt, and I don't doubt that uh, protestations that they were going to do everything, leave no stone unturned to fix the situation in long-term care. Yet we seem to be on a very deadly trajectory there. There are outbreaks in about 107 nursing homes. There are hundreds of residents and staff infected. A lot of them are still not even separated. Uh, and it, you know, looks like they did not take advantage of the summer to put in measures to prevent this. Are, are they wearing this now or will they? There's no question that this is um, a difficult, I, I would say one of the most difficult situations for the government to have to deal with. Uh, because it's compounded by the fact that families have actually had the most serious restrictions on seeing their loved ones. And so it's not, you You can talk about community spread and how the community spread is impacting workers that work in long-term care facilities and how that spread is bringing, coming back into those sectors. But it's hard for families to, to understand what's happening because the, the restrictions that have been placed on visits have been so, uh, so restrictive. And, and yet now to see this unfolding is, is frustrating in a way that um, is, is, is going to compound the problems of the government. And, you know, the fact is that they, you know, they had a study, they did it, they didn't do, um, you know, they didn't implement the recommendations that were brought forward to them. Now there's a situation where, again, how, how are you, how are they going to contain this in the nursing homes when they know in the long-term care facilities, when they know that it's so deadly? And, you know, at some point, there's a question, are the procedures being followed within those places or are they not? And if they're not, well, what is the consequence? And if they are, well, then those protocols aren't adequate and they need to be added to. But it, it is, I think, one of, one of the more 
of, of the issues facing the government, this is one that, that has the most potential to, to be um, damaging for them. Uh, John, so, uh, you know, we've seen the minister of long-term care keeps saying you can't snap your fingers and hire more people, which is a key because the staff are all burnt out. But yet in Quebec, it, they took the summer. Quebec had a horrific situation, worse than ours. And, and they upgraded workers. Not only did they pay them more, but they paid for their training and they got them trained up. And that is bearing fruit. Uh, the government didn't do that, and it seems that they're still blaming the previous government. And and a lot of people have pointed out that there's there's stuff to do immediately. There's stuff in the long term. So yes, maybe they're dealing with the long term, but there wasn't even a budget item. I mean, are are they getting this wrong? Well, I, 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 it continues to be a, a significant challenge for uh, not only for for those who um, are are in the long term care workers, um, families of, and, and also the government. I I remember uh, Karen when uh, she was mentioning about how what she had to go through to, to get the tests and to wait for the tests to see her father, uh, and uh, and the fact that you know she like other family members you know had to go through all that 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 process in order to to ensure that there was a safety for both everyone that's involved, but. But, you know, the government, this is a systemic problem that has happened for a long time. So, yeah, it's, it's one thing to be able to say, look, this has been going on for a number of years. It's only been exasperated, you know, by virtue of the pandemic, which, you know, obviously has caused a number of issues. And the government has tried to deal with it on a time by on a day by day basis by not only, you know, putting together a task force to look at this in a, in a real and transparent way, but also, you know, putting in two billion dollars to help you know, renovate old homes and, and help build new ones and, and the four hours of daily hands-on care and things that are immediate and Wait helpful. a minute, the four hours of hands-on care is going to come in in 2024. Well, by 2025, I think. So there's yeah. going to be, it's going to be something that is going to be evolving and it's going to be in by 2025. And, and obviously that, that involves, you know, a lot of, a lot of money, which the government is prepared to, to spend and has been spending and continues to spend. But it, it's, it's a, it's a challenging issue. There's no question the minister is facing some daily challenges with this, uh, as is the government. But I think Libby, at the end of the day, they are trying to do what they can with what they have. And they, you can't just turn on a dime on a system that has been broken for the last 20 plus years because governments of the past have not given. And I, you know, and I say this for the last you know, couple of decades, they've never given this particular portfolio or this ministry the attention and the power that it deserves. And I think if there's a silver, if there's a silver lining, uh, I think going forward, this, this issue of long-term care uh, is going to be elevated to the highest levels of, of cabinet uh, uh, importance. Uh, Charles, do you buy that? Because again, there are things that Quebec did in terms of getting more staff that have not been done here. There's also uh, a lot of anger about the fact that the government has uh, changed the law to indemnify nursing homes. They've raised the standard you have to prove gross negligence instead of negligence. It's a standard that uh, a lot of people won't be able to meet, partly because, you know, the victims, some of them are dead, they have dementia. Um, is, 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 are people still buying that argument that this is just left from the Liberal government? No. Um, in fact, I mean, coffins don't come with silver line. That's, that's the reality of the situation. And this government has had, um, since March, to not think about the long term, but to play a short term game in terms of protecting lives now. 
And, you know, I can, I can see it in the premier, just how frustrated he's been with regards to tracing and testing and with regards to the provision of care and long-term care homes. But the reality is no matter how empathetic he might be, um, the buck stops with him. And the fact that privately run long-term care facilities are being provided the kind of protections that they are in the midst of a pandemic is really worrisome. I mean, we're, we're starting back into a really, really dark time. We're starting to see a spike in numbers of both long-term care homes. And in, in economic terms, we're starting to see a lot more infections in Ontario public schools. And economically, that could be devastating because if those schools have to close again and those kids are back at home and mom and dad or whomever have to look after them, that is going to present huge, huge challenges. And I think, you know, it, we obviously are in the midst of a nightmare that we have to get through. And I remain convinced that different levels of government, medical professionals, all citizens have to do what's asked of them to make sure we get through this with a minimal loss of life and a minimal economic impact. But there's no doubt this government could have done better, a lot better. And I, I keep coming back to ideology. I keep coming back to the notion that they're really interested in not spending what they have to spend in order to protect people and really thinking more about the economy than, than the health of Ontarians. And, and that's obviously very worrisome because what is coming is far worse than anything we've seen. Uh, let's, let's drill down on that. I was, I, I was quite surprised. There was a tweet from one of the leading geriatricians uh, in Toronto, and he said, you know, the, the, it was like a very personal comment about the premier. He said, the premier shows a lot more empathy for somebody losing their business. What about people losing loved ones? Uh, he doesn't seem to show that. Karen, is that a fair comment? No, I don't think that's fair at all. Um, I think that, uh, you know, the premier in the beginning in March, uh, you know, he did, he did listen. He listened to all of the information that he had and all the health professional advice that he could receive. But, but again, if we, if we move to March, April, May, June, um, not all the health advice was consistent in fairness to the government and in fairness to people running businesses. And there was a lot of conflicting information around um, whether kids were um, vectors or not, whether schools were sources of transmission or just reflect community transmission. And the verdict is still not out on that one. There was a lot of uh, dispute around mask wearing and whether or not that we should be doing that widely or not. There was um, advice around, um, you know, from from certain medical establishments around the importance of getting kids back to school. And then, so, you know, in, in terms of a government trying to navigate through the complexities of, of a health pandemic, of an economy, of um, people's lives, because it's, people's lives are impacted. When, when someone loses their entire livelihood, that's something to think about. Uh, in terms of moving forward. So, and it's not just a one-off. It's, it's several people, people across the province are losing their livelihood. And that's not something to be taken lightly either, because that has long-term consequences of which we don't even begin to understand. And so in fairness to the government who's trying to navigate through this, um, there's some things that we know, and Peel has made the decision again not to hold weddings. Okay, because you point to super spreader events, weddings seem to be a significant source of, of transmission. And so if we know that, okay, then we can take that action. 
But we also have told businesses, here are the, the things that you need to put in place in order to keep your employees safe. And many businesses have spent hundreds of thousands of dollars to do that, only to now be told that we have to shut down. That's frustrating. How now, it's beyond frustrating. And, and it's, you know, and again, when you point to the long-term care homes, and, and again, back to, are they following the protocols or are they not? If they're not, then they should have consequences and they shouldn't be shielded by a law saying that they are not liable. If they are following the protocols and this transmission is still occurring, then we need to dig in there quickly and find out what is not working. Well, a lot of it is not working. How are, how are you coping with the new restrictions? Well, for us, again, you know, we're, we're notionally allowed to reopen for 10 people um, in a gym. Uh, we also run other programs that we're still continued to allow to run. And, um, but it's, it, it is a difficult proposition to tell people that they can work out on exercise equipment with a mask, but they're doing it. And, um, you know, we've restricted our employees to only come in as needed. And we're trying to do our part to live within the advice that we're receiving from public health. But I can tell you, as a business operator trying to figure out for public health what the protocols are, I get a lot of conflicting advice from public health. So, Again, so I just from, want to make the point, like, from the Toronto Public Health, when I call Toronto Public Health, I will get, if I call twice, I will get two pieces of information. If I call three times, it could be three. And so, Okay, so is it different, is, is it different what contact tracers or work, <laughs> that's interesting. I've, I've heard other things about Toronto Public Health, but go yeah. on, please. Yeah, so when we had a case of a volunteer that came in that later tested positive for COVID, um, she had her test results six days after she was in volunteering for us, and we called public health to try to figure out what to do, and we did not get any straight answers. Uh, is, what do you mean? So, so what did they tell who, you? Who needed, who needed to get tested? Who needed to get notified? Who needed to get, um, who we needed to talk to, whether they were going to come out and investigate? Ultimately, nobody did come out to investigate. We were left as a business to, to tell we, there was no, uh, we were left to do the contact tracing. And so, you know, we did the, we did what we could do. But luckily we had, because we had records of everybody who were in the building that day, we could do that job. But again, nobody fed back to us any information. And every time we called to see, okay, when can our employees come back to work? We, we, we got no straight answers. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I was talking to a friend who tested positive and, uh, you know, she's been in constant contact with public health. She calls it the government. Um, and uh, again, it didn't seem like there was any reasonable guidance. Uh, no. it, I mean, uh, it was, you know, sh she said she has no idea where she got it, but she lives with one of her sons who's a young man. Uh, now, I'm assuming there's probably a likelihood she got it from him, but um, nothing turned up. They both had the contact tracer app. Nothing turned up for him uh, about her, and he's obviously been in contact with her. And since they live in a condo and the measures... If he was going to go to get tested, they'd have to do like massive cleaning of the elevators and stuff. They decided, leave it and... and Public health was okay with that. Yeah, I'm not surprised. <laughs> so it's, I mean, it really is, uh, um, I don't know, it's really... So uh, in the midst of that, I, my sympathies go to the Premier, because when, when he's, to hear he's not taking the advice from public health, 
there's a lot of advice coming from public health, and it's not all consistent. Well, yeah, and I know there was this whole thing that the Toronto Star made a huge uh, deal of, that uh, confidentiality agreements, but they're right. There are lots of people around all these tables, and and, um, you can't take advice from all of them. Right. Um, So... At the end of the day, uh, let's get back to John. You know, do you think that there is going to be something that more uh, readily approaches a lockdown? Well, yeah, and I think first I wanted to uh, just disagree with with Charles's notion that the premier is doing a lousy job. I think, quite frankly, that the premier is doing one of the best jobs in this country uh, as premiers go with respect to having to deal with what he's had to deal with. So I do, I do disagree with his contention about that. And also, just I have to say this: the, the person that you mentioned or read that tweet about the premier not being empathetic, I think that's just nonsense. The, the premier is one of the few that actually wears his emotions on his sleeve every day. Uh, when he gets out in a daily conference, whether or not it's of someone who loses a business because he understands the fact that, you know, losing a business is heartfelt and it actually has ramifications for family members, but also losing, he lost his mother during the pandemic. But people, you know, he, he understands and is as sympathetic as any, any political leader can be and is uh, by way of just being raw about it. So I, I just wanted to sort of make, make those mentions. But, you know, I, I think the premier's always said, Libby, that he, nothing is off the table, that he will look at all options. I think the fact that he's been bending over backwards to try to come up with codes and, and, and systems and, and try to be laser focused with respect to jurisdictions that, that can stay open and not stay open, the schools having to go back and having to deal with that because of the mental health of parents and of kids and, and all that, like, you, 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 there is no playbook by way, anybody could say, okay, turn to page 45. What does it say about, you know, a pandemic of this, in, uh, of this magnitude? What do you do with schools? What do you do with gyms? What do you do with this kind of stuff? I think he is taking uh, the advice that he can. And Karen is right. Some of the healthcare officials will have differing views from the federal to the provincial to the local uh, officials, as they probably should, because each jurisdiction is different. He has to weigh all of that and do what he can. And I think he's doing a phenomenal job given the circumstances. So I think anyone who says that he's not, uh, I think is just is wrong and, and uh, you know, and, and is, is they're up to their opinion to, to be able to say that. But I think that, that he is trying to do what he can and has said that if these numbers continue, he will. He's not short of locking things down, but he wants to obviously prevent that for the sake of people's health. Hmm. Charles. Well, I don't know if John's talking about Doug Ford or Donald Trump in terms of the language he's using. I mean, the phenomenal job oh, in the midst a of a pandemic. Oh. I mean, Lord God, give that's really, break, that's get really off, get off Donald Trump. And by yeah. the way, I didn't say oh, he's done the... a lousy job. I actually expressed yeah. some sympathy to the degree of frustration she is feeling. But I will say again, very plainly, the buck stops with him. And I think if there is one mistake this government has made, it's that they erred on the side of economic activity. And now they find themselves having to scamper on back from that as numbers explode and as people die. And these are deadly serious issues. This isn't about partisanship. This isn't about scoring points. This is about keeping people alive and trying to keep the economy alive. So let's leave it at that. Uh, Yeah, it's the it's. The argument that some of these doctors are making, saying that if you don't do the hard thing, it's just going to keep coming back and coming back. So, I mean, I guess that's a, a matter we wait and see what happens. But, uh, you know, there there comes a time, um, John, I mean, I think part of it is just the natural ebb and flow of politics that, that uh, the premier's performance got huge kudos at the beginning. Well, you know. Now maybe uh, that's wearing off a bit. 
Well, and, and it's, it's with every political leader. No one ever sustains those kinds of numbers. And I think during, during a crisis, be it the pandemic or any other crisis, you know, I think Canadians and, and voters in general tend to want to lean uh, in and, and sort of give as much support as they can to their leaders, obviously, to do their, to their job. Some do it well, some don't. Uh, I think the premier and the premiers and the prime minister early on, I think, did did very well in what they were and how they were handling the pandemic, and and that showed with the, with the uh, surge in, in popular numbers for all of our political leaders. Um, but as that, you know, as the as the as the, the, the ebb and flow of the pandemic happens, and uh, you know, you see that with with support as well. But I think by and large, Ontarians still support this premier, still understand that he's doing a good job despite. The fact that there are some challenges that he's facing, and that, but the, the reality that he could do is just go out every day as he does, and give a transparent uh, information message uh, to Ontarians, and do the best that he can by balancing what he can by way of the economy and and healthcare. Hmm. Uh, who was it that mentioned Christmas? Uh, so we're not that far off. Christmas. And uh, I think I've heard a few public health messages saying, uh, you know, from the health minister saying it's it's going to be different this year, but it's hard to imagine that people will not be gathering. And I've heard uh, from people who say, you know what, <laughs> we're going to be gathering. You know, what, what can we expect after that, Karen? Well, this is the thing, you know, Charles said the buck stops with the premier. The reality is the buck stops with us because places don't transmit COVID, people transmit COVID. And so, you know, there has to, you know, at some point, um, getting public buy-in is going to be critical for finding it, for figuring out a solution. If we can't get public buy-in, then I guess you need to go to a draconian step. But if you still have faith that people will do the right thing with the right information to govern themselves, then, then that has to be given to people. And so instead of saying, don't get together at Christmas, because that's probably not going to happen, you can say it, and then you can crack down on people who do, and you can shame people who get together with their family. But maybe a new strategy might be, you know, it's just really important that you're going to have gatherings. Can you have multiple gatherings that involve smaller people? Or wait a day in between? Or, you know, find a way to take your temperature? Or actually giving people more pragmatic tips to how they can manage their gatherings as opposed to just say, don't. Because the don't strategy, again, is not getting us where we need to go. And ultimately, it's people will, are the, the ones that are transmitting this disease. And whenever we look to mass transmissions, it's because someone didn't wear a mask, someone didn't pay attention to the protocols, someone didn't adhere to the rules. And so, again, help make the rules such that we can actually follow them. And if you only can have a four-person gathering or a three-person gathering or a two-person gathering, okay, then just say it. And But figure out how to help people manage through this. Because um, it, because even if you lock us down for three months, like they did in Melbourne, and we get to the case of zero, unless Ontario becomes its own bubble and doesn't allow anybody in or out, it's only temporal. Wow. And, until the next person comes in from the U.S. Or, or Calgary or wherever, like because Manitoba had one case this summer, one case, and now they're on lockdown. Uh, okay. Wow. We're almost out of time. John, um what do you think? Is that a good idea? Just help people manage those gatherings? Well, you know, the, the point Karen makes about the buck stops with us is, is very true. There was just another case where the Toronto, I think Toronto police charged somebody or somebody that was having a party of 100 people within a storage locker of some sort. I think I read people are going to get together. They're going to do foolish things and they're going to spread the disease. And I think that, you know, there's only so much 
that the governments can do unless they put some some punishments that, that are beyond, you know, reproach. But I, I, at the end of the day, I think we all have to sort of take heed of, of what's happening and, and be responsible. I think the vast majority of us are. Uh, that continues to happen. I think governments continue to have to weigh the option of, of dealing with lockdowns and, and shutting down various establishments. I think restaurants, I said this before, I think restaurants have always done a fairly good job, as have grocery stores, uh, in ensuring the health and safety of their customers. And they should be allowed to continue with the guidelines as long as they adhere to them. Okay, Charles, uh, 20 seconds, because we're over time. I think personal conduct is a big big part of the answer of how we get out of this. But I will say it's not on us. It's not on the people that private long-term care facility operators have been granted indemnification. It's not on individual citizens that case testing and tracing in this province has been an utter debacle. The mixed messaging, the lack of consistency, the tendency towards economic activity over public health, I don't think that's on us. I think that's on the government. And that's something that history will have to work out in terms of how the Premier and his government have performed. Right. And I also have to say that I totally concur with Karen. I think some of it is on Toronto Public Health. Sorry, in a lot of ways, they do not have their act together. But uh, we have to wrap it up there. We can continue the conversation next week. Uh, Everybody, have a great week. And thank you so much, as always, Charles Bird, John Capobianco, and Karen Stintz. Thanks, Thanks, Okay. Bye-bye. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.